Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. So I think I have just one quick correction before we begin. I believe in either the last episode or the episode before, I had claimed that uh, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger had characterized Lauren Boebert and her ilk as the American Taliban. I believe he characterized them as the Christian Taliban. Just want to get things uh, straight there. Probably not a big deal. Same gist, but you know, I think it's good to be as factual as possible. But let's move on to our first story. So apparently someone blew up the Georgia Guidestones. And it's a wacky story, but actually I think it's kind of sad. I like having weird stuff out there in the world, these kind of strange monuments, etc. And it's kind of ironic. Supposedly, uh, the Georgia Guidestones were built by, or um, the building of them was arranged by a guy who went by the pseudonym Robert Christian, I think it is, and he claimed to have been representing this small group of loyal, I think, Christian Americans. So uh, I think even the use of the word of the name Robert Christian was supposed to be a nod to Christianity. Hey everyone, it's me. So while putting together the YouTube version of this episode, I noticed some things that needed clarifying or correcting, so I'm going to be doing that annoying thing where I interrupt myself through the magic of editing here and there to take care of my mistakes. And so, first one at hand, I think perhaps it might be going too far to characterize the group Robert C. Christian claimed to be representing as being specifically Christian. According to the tale, he claimed to be representing a quote-unquote small group of loyal Americans who believe in God. Maybe they were Christian, maybe they weren't, maybe it was a mix, and that's if they even existed at all. No real reason to believe they didn't. I'm just trying to tread lightly and not claim anything I'm not certain of. But of course, as I touch on several times in this episode and I think I did right before I interrupted myself, it's been suggested that Robert C. Christian chose that pseudonym as a nod to his Christian faith. But of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone he was representing was also Christian. Uh, But anyway, uh, we now rejoin the weekend out already in progress. But I think um, researchers dug up who the guy supposedly was And his original name, I think, is a German surname uh, that's similar to Christian or German version of Christian. So ironically, uh, the Guidestones may have been built or arranged to have been built by a group of Christians. And yet uh, conspiracy theorists have come to think of them as being kind of evil or satanic. Uh, Because there's a list of precepts or uh, tenets on the Georgia Guidestones that over time have been transcribed into different languages. By the way, I should probably be using the past tense since technically they no longer exist. 
And they mention kind of population control and population control kind of sets off conspiracy theorists. So the Guidestones have uh, been connected with the New World Order and that kind of thing. So, uh, and they've been vandalized in the past, but yeah, recently someone took it a step further and, uh, and blew them up. And I think they only partially destroyed them, but what remained was also demolished for the sake of safety. And I probably should have mentioned that the Georgia Guidestones didn't go back that far. Uh, they were erected, or the process of having them erected began in the late 70s, in uh, 1979, I think. And I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, and so yeah, it's saying that there were eight languages on the stones. English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, traditional Chinese, and Russian. The languages were chosen because they represented most of humanity, while Hebrew was chosen because of its connections to Judaism and Christianity. According to the monument's sponsors, the inscriptions are meant to guide humanity to conserve nature after a nuclear war, which the creators thought was an imminent threat. The inscriptions dealt with four main themes, governance and the establishment of a world government, population and reproduction control, the environment and humankind's relationship to nature and spirituality. And I have to admit, yeah, I think overpopulation is a bad thing, but it does get a little scary whenever people start talking about population control. But I think these are meant to be recommendations for posterity. But the list of uh, 10 principles is pretty interesting, and maybe I'll just go through it here. So number one is maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Number two, guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. So that almost sounds, it almost smacks of eugenics or at least... Um, you know, selective breeding. Uh, number three, unite humanity with a living new language. Number four, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. I actually uh, kind of agree with that one. Kind of reminds me of stoicism. Number five, protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Definitely agree with that one. Number six, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Uh, yeah, I can agree with that. And ideally, isn't that kind of what we are supposed to be doing now? Uh, we have the uh, United Nations and international courts, etc. Uh, number seven, avoid petty laws and useless officials. I imagine most of us can agree wholeheartedly with that one. Eight, balance personal rights with social duties. Uh, I can understand where they're going with that. My only fear or concern would be what kind of balance are we talking about? Number nine, prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. And obviously that kind of smacks of spirituality as a secular type, an agnostic atheist, you know, uh, I can still get on with that, you know, especially as someone who has a fondness for things like Buddhism and Eastern religion, the perennial philosophy, etc. 
maybe a little hokey, but I can appreciate the uh, spirit of it, no pun intended. Uh, number 10, be not a cancer on the earth, leave room for nature, leave room for nature. They kind of emphasize that one. I agree 110% on that. But Hemant Mehta over at Only Sky wrote about this, and maybe I'll read a bit from his article. It's entitled, Conspiracists Rejoice After Quote-Unquote Satanic Georgia Guidestones Destroyed. And the uh, subtitle or whatever is, This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. And so just for context, this article was published back on the 8th. And so it begins, On Wednesday morning before the sun came up in the city of Elberton, the Georgia Guidestones were destroyed in an act of vandalism that was immediately celebrated by fundamentalist Christians who felt a satanic threat had been destroyed. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, strap in because this story is wild. The Guidestones, which were meant to invoke a spirit of Stonehenge, were erected in 1980, so I guess technically erected in 1980, but the planning or whatever, the uh, transaction may have begun in 1979, at the request of the mysterious Robert C. Christian. Over the next four decades, they became a tourist attraction for people fascinated by the message inscribed on one of the slabs of rock and copied in seven additional languages on the rest of the monument. The message was a set of ten principles a new civilization ought to adopt in the case of a nuclear war or some other apocalyptic event. An inscription in the capstone read, Let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Among those principles, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. So kind of bear with me, a lot of this is reiterating what I already kind of, uh, spoke of or laid down. And so he runs through some of the principles I already read, so I'll jump down a bit. Yet those principles I just mentioned were at the center of numerous right-wing conspiracy theories. The one about maintaining humanity at half a billion people at a time when the world's population is nearly 8 billion suggests an act of genocide. The idea of quote-unquote guiding reproduction wisely reeks of eugenics. I said something to that effect. And I didn't read this article before offering my commentary. And the idea of a quote-unquote world court is commonplace in the fantasies of end-time preachers who believe such a scenario would exist under the control of the Antichrist. It's no wonder that fundamentalist Christians, like failed gubernatorial candidate Candace Taylor, vowed to destroy the Guidestones if she were elected. Her obsession with the Guidestones was so outlandish that it inspired a fantastic online-only segment on Last Week Tonight at the end of May. And I believe that's John Oliver's show, right? Yeah, it actually says so right here. One thing John Oliver notes at the end of the segment is that in researching this piece, his staff came across a documentary that hints at who quote-unquote Robert C. Christian actually was, and that person turns out to be a white supremacist and supporter of eugenics. If that suggestion is indeed correct, it paints the monument in a very different light. It's no longer just a whimsical tourist draw. It's a disturbing set of advice from someone who held awful beliefs. Which is to say there were arguably some big problems with the monument. 
but not for the reasons Candace Taylor and conspiracists Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Alex Jones were worried about. And then Wednesday, the Guidestones were destroyed. And it looks like there's some kind of embedded quote or excerpt. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation said, quote unquote, unknown individuals detonated an explosive device around 4 a.m., destroying a large portion of the Georgia Guidestones. Video footage released by law enforcement shows a car leaving the scene shortly after the blast, although the GBI did not specify whether the driver was connected to the incident. Later in the day, authorities demolished the whole monument, citing safety reasons. And then uh, Hemet continues, so much for the idea that the monument would be capable of, quote-unquote, withstanding catastrophic events, as its creator had specified. Taylor, feeling her delusional Christian beliefs had been vindicated, celebrated the act of vandalism. And so here's a tweet from uh, Candace Taylor. God is God all by himself. He can do anything he wants to do. That includes striking down satanic godstones. Yet uh, apparently it was most likely a bunch of guys in a car with some explosives. I think there were um, several people in the car. I'm not sure. Yeah, and Hemet adds in parentheses, it wasn't God, it was an explosion. Now, if a lightning bolt out of nowhere blew the thing to smithereens, now that would be impressive. But even then, as a skeptic, I'd probably just write it off as a freak coincidence or whatever. Uh, but at least then there'd be some room to try to argue that it was an act of God. Um, you know, a kind of spooky lightning bolt striking this controversial monument instead of just, you know... A group of guys with uh, too much spare time and some explosives. That's interesting, though. If the guy behind it really was a white supremacist and eugenicist, uh, I don't know, should it have come down? But even then, people shouldn't take it into their own hands to go around setting off, you know, dangerous explosives or whatever. Me personally, as I was saying earlier... I was kind of fond of the Georgia Guidestones just because I like weird stuff. You know, I like having strange monuments and that kind of thing out there. Uh, but the guy behind it really did hold these abhorrent beliefs. I guess I won't really shed any tears over it being gone. But once again, you know, people can't be taking that kind of thing into, into their own hands, setting off dangerous explosives, etc. That should be something you petition the government um, about or, you know, pursuing some kind of, uh, you know, legal process or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm still like a little sad. We had this weird monument kicking around and then one day it was there and now it's not. And as they say, it was meant to evoke or be reminiscent of Stonehenge. Well, at least we still have the real Stonehenge, knock on wood. Was it a European vacation where they back into Stonehenge and it goes down like a uh, circle of dominoes? Uh, <laughs> and getting a little silly. And just so I don't have to issue a correction next time. Yeah, I said that supposedly... Um, this man, using the pseudonym Robert Christian, claimed to be representing a group of uh, of American, of loyal Americans, of Christians or whatever. I'm not 100% sure of that. And I don't know what the deal was. Was this guy trying to, you know, bring the world together? Was he a eugenicist and a racist? 
And as I said, um, people do claim that his use of the name Christian was meant to be a nod to Christianity. But as I stated earlier, uh, when researchers found out, I think the last name was Kirsten or something like that, but he had a German surname, which is like the German equivalent of Christian. So that could have been the reason why he chose the uh, pseudonym Christian. But that's probably enough about the Georgia Guidestone, so let's move on. Can't believe I spent about 14 minutes talking about that. So I'm going to cover yet another story involving a kind of right-wing figure uh, who's openly showing disdain or questioning the validity of the concept of the separation of church and state. Remember, first we had hate preacher Stephen Anderson, I covered that a, a bit ago, then Lauren Boebert, uh, and now Charlie Kirk. And so if you're not familiar, Charlie Kirk is this kind of conservative right-wing radio talk show host slash content creator. And uh, I actually harvested this clip from Kyle Kalinske's Secular Talk, and I think that Kyle does a great job of dismantling uh, Charlie Kirk's talking points. So I'll just play the clip and let Kyle do the uh, heavy lifting. There is no separation of church and state. It's a fabrication. It's a fiction. It's not in the Constitution. It's made up by secular humanists. It's derived from a single letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Convention. Of course, we should have church and state mixed together. Our founding fathers believed in that. We can go through the details of that. They established literally a church um, in Congress. Anyway, <sighs> By the way, I don't know if you can see this here. It says, email Charlie, freedom at charliekirk.com, freedom at charliekirk.com. Um, you might want to change that to theocracy at charliekirk.com, theocracy. I don't know how, and by the way, he's said a number of times, I think even in conversation with me when I debated him, that he views himself as more of a libertarian-leaning conservative. This is not, that's not libertarianism. That's not libertarianism at all. That's theocracy. So, and by the way, he's totally factually wrong about uh, the founders and what they intended and the meaning of the words on the page. The Establishment Clause. In the United States law, uh, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, together with the Amendment's Free Exercise Clause, form the Constitution's right of freedom of religion. The relevant constitutional text is, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's, that's the wording. So here's what that means. If you want to be religious, you're an individual private person. You're an American citizen. You want to be religious? You have every right to be religious. You could be how, however religious or non-religious as you want. That's the freedom of religion. But the other portion of it is, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, the government will not enforce a religion on people. The government will not take a position on the issue of religion. There will be no state religion. That's what that is. So, in other words, the government needs to remain rigidly neutral on issues of religion. And by the way, I think they nailed it. I think they got it exactly right. Because you don't want a situation where... You have like a secular government, but enforced secularism on the population where it's like, not only is our government not religious, we don't want you, the people to be religious either. And we will make sure you're not right. So, you know, like a, a somewhat China like situation. That's that's not it. That's not the way to go. By the same token, it is not the way to go to have the government say, 
we have a, a government religion here. We all believe in X. And the people now, you all need to believe in X. You all need to abide by our interpretation of our religion that we have officially in our government. That would be the polar opposite extreme, which is terrible. They struck the perfect balance. You, the citizens, can do whatever the hell you want to do. Believe whatever you want to believe. Practice whatever you want to practice as long as you're not taking away other people's rights. Totally fine. But us, the government, we are going to be secular. We are going to be neutral on issues of religion. And so, like I said, I think Kyle did a really good job there. And I noticed a similarity between Charlie Kirk's talking points and Lauren Boebert's. They both seem to, you know, try to dismiss Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Church Association. And uh, it's funny, these are people who claim to revere the Founding Fathers, and I think people especially, you know, put Jefferson up on a pedestal, but when it stands in the way of their theocracy, oh, that was just some letter from Thomas Jefferson, some guy named Thomas Jefferson, you know? But even if you wanted to take that letter out of the equation, you still have the Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses as Kyle pointed out, and I pointed out, I think in the last episode, to the First Amendment, which together state, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And to me, this embodies the spirit or idea of the separation of church and state. And in fact, when Thomas Jefferson invokes or uses that phrase, separation of church and state, in his aforementioned letter to the Danbury uh, Baptist Church Association, he's actually referencing the Establishment Clause. Okay, it's me again. So twice there I use the phrase Danbury Baptist Church Association, and the Danbury Baptists were a religious minority in Connecticut, and the Danbury Baptist Association, not Church Association, wrote to Thomas Jefferson because they were concerned about their freedom to practice their religion and the fear of possibly being subjected to a government-endorsed religion. And Jefferson wrote back to them in his famous 1802 letter, attempting to assuage their fears, referencing the Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses of the First Amendment, and utilizing or employing the phrase or term, separation of church and state. So I probably just should have said Danbury Baptist or Danbury Baptist Association and not Church Association. Relatively minor quibble, I guess, but I try to be as honest and as accurate as possible. But we now resume the week in doubt already in progress. So people like Charlie Kirk and Lauren Boebert either just don't know what the hell they're talking about or they're intentionally being, you know, intellectually dishonest. And I guess the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, given the two individuals we're talking about. You know, some admixture of stupidity and dishonesty sounds about right. And that might sound mean-spirited, but hey, we have to push back against this crap. We're living in scary times. We have all these high-profile figures on the right, some of them, you know, government officials, who are more and more brazenly pushing basically for theocracy, trying to undermine the cherished principle of the separation of church and state. But before separation of church and state becomes the drinking game phrase of the week, let's move on. And I don't know how much time I'll spend on this one, but I want to at least touch on it. 
And this is from the Daily Mail for, you know, what it's worth. But in fairness, this story has been all over the place. Walgreens clerk refuses to sell condoms to married couple because of his faith. Just days after, a religious worker at another store said she would not refill woman's birth control prescription. And just to give you some context, this story is dated July 12th. I'll quickly read through the bullet points. So it says, Nate and Jessica Pence said a clerk at a Wisconsin Walgreens refused to sell them condoms on July 4th because his faith demanded it. Walgreens apologized to the couple, but the company maintains its policy, allowing workers to step away if they have a moral objection to a purchase. The incident came three days after TikToker Abigail Martin said another Walgreens employee refused to refill her birth control prescription. And so instead of reading through the entire article, I'll just give you my kind of quick overview and thoughts on this because I've watched a couple of videos about this, read a couple of articles about it. Yeah, very strange. So I believe the wife was representing the couple and she went up to the counter. She wanted to buy some condoms and this Christian clerk or cashier just refused to sell her them, uh, citing his faith. And so a manager had to come out. They had to log the guy out of his register. The manager logged in, sold the couple the condoms. And then I guess the, you know, the clerk logged back in or whatever. Um, and so my thinking is, it just comes off as so rude. And it's like, why are you working at a store that sells products that you morally object to? You know, and then you think it's your right to subject customers who are trying to buy products that that store carries and they rightly you know, assume they'll be able to buy at the register, you sub, you know, you subject them to your faith, you inconvenience them. Why not just get another job or, or just keep your faith to yourself and, and do the job? You know, not, not everyone shares your faith. And there's probably even plenty of Christians who don't see anything wrong with using contraceptives, especially if they're married. And then what is this weird, in my opinion, wrong-headed policy of Walgreens where they support and allow workers to step away from completing a purchase that they object to morally? It's like, make a, make a choice, Walgreens. Either don't carry the products or screen your potential hires and ask them up front if they're going to be comfortable selling all of the available products that are found in the store. And if not, sorry, you're not going to be a good fit for the company. You know, I guess I can see if I try to be charitable, maybe they're trying to accommodate, you know, everyone. Oh, the customer can still buy their product, but the cashier doesn't, you know, have to compromise their principles. We'll just have, you know, another cashier come over and complete the purchase. But that has to be awkward. Imagine you're buying something that a store carries and then you get to the counter and basically someone is like oh well, I think you're an immoral piece of shit I, <laughs> I find what you're buying so reprehensible that I can't even finish the transaction you're going to have to awkwardly wait while we try to find a less principled cashier to come over and ring you up and then as mentioned in the bullet points there was also the story of a young tiktoker 
uh, slash influencer. She was one of these van life people. So just a, a young girl, I think barely out of high school, uh, living and traveling in a van. And she went to get her birth control refilled. And the old woman behind the counter at the Walgreens pharmacy wouldn't give it to her. I just wanted to double check her age. So I looked it up and Abigail Martin is apparently 20 years old. Uh, but yeah, the woman wouldn't sell her her birth control. Um, so some people, I mean, these stories to me are really infuri infuriating because it's people pushing their religion on other people. And I think when people go into a store, they have the right to expect that they can purchase whatever products are hanging on the shelves or, you know, are available in the store or that can be purchased through the uh, pharmacy with the doctor's uh, prescription. Um, so, yeah, it's just gross. Th these stories really get under my skin. And people have been theorizing that, in part, this could have to do with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the implementation of these draconian abortion laws, kind of uh, emboldening far-right, you know, Christians to take these kind of matters into their own hands or whatever. Although I'm sure, unfortunately, stuff like this was already going on before then. I know some people might not be able to because they might not have a lot of choices where they live. But if you can, I would say boycott these places. Any of these stores, man, especially Walgreens, where they say they support an employee not selling a customer a product they carry because the employee personally finds it morally objectionable. Uh, that's ludicrous to me. It's outrageous. Um, customers deserve better than that. They shouldn't have to go into a store wondering if the person behind the counter isn't going to ring them up because they don't like the product that they're trying to buy. Tell Walgreens to screw if you can do your shopping elsewhere. That's what I think. And so if that story made you mad, this one's really bad. It's so depressing, I almost didn't want to cover it, but I think it's important. And so this one uh, is also by Hemet Mehta uh, from Only Sky, and it's dated July 6th. Twelve Christians arrested in Australia after a faith-healing death of child. The Christians denied insulin to eight-year-old Elizabeth Rose Struss, I think it is, believing God would cure her. Then she died. Eight-year-old Elizabeth Rose Strews, I think it is, I just listened to a little news story about it, needed insulin to handle her type 1 diabetes. But in January, at least a dozen members of a Christian cult in Toowoomba, Queensland, Australia, withheld that insulin for over six days. Instead of giving her the life-saving treatment, they sang and prayed, asking God to take over. It never crossed their mind that insulin itself could be attributed to God. The quote-unquote faith-healing attempt failed, and Elizabeth soon died due to their religious negligence. One newspaper reports that church members believed she would be quote-unquote resurrected. She was not. She was dead. Those Christians killed her. Now another 12 members of, in quotes, the saints, have been arrested and charged with murder following the arrests of Elizabeth's parents earlier this year. 
and so I'll skip down a bit. A lot of the details are remarkably similar to a different faith healing cult in Oregon. The followers of Christ Church, its members killed several of their children over the past two decades by neglecting their treatable diseases, leading the Oregon legislature to remove faith healing as an exemption to homicide charges. The simple fact is that children shouldn't be sentenced to death because their parents are brainwashed by Jesus. Quote-unquote faith healing is nothing more than a myth promoted by certain kinds of Christians. It's one thing if people pray to heal themselves, which would be useless but legal. But when they deprive a baby or child of medical treatment because of their own delusions and their ignorance leads to the child's death, they deserve to be branded as murderers. I agree 110%. I don't know why the hell I keep saying 110% in this episode. I think Lou Ferrigno used to say that on The Celebrity Apprentice, and as I was recording, I was cognizant of that on some level and felt a little self-conscious, but said it anyway. Uh, absolutely. I can't even imagine being that deluded or monstrous that you would put your own religious beliefs before a child's well-being, especially in a life-and-death situation. I can't even wrap my head around it. And if there were or is, for the sake of argument, some sentient creator god out there, why would it care if you used man-made medicine to save someone's life? Um, if it's a, a decent entity, wouldn't it actually be glad or be proud that its creations took the brains it gave them and the resources of the world it created and developed ways to save people, harness those things for good? I think in a sense it may be an ego thing. I'm somewhat familiar with these kinds of cases, and uh, the people in these situations usually seem to view everything as a test from God. Your child's sick or even dying, that's a test from God. And so they want to prove themselves to their Lord that they have enough faith to rely on prayer instead of uh, man-made medicine. Yeah, it's just really grotesque. It's almost like they want to prove they're worthy enough, you know? Um, when, like I said... Unless this hypothetical god is some kind of moral monster, he, she, or it would probably want you to do whatever you needed to to save your child, including, you know, resorting to man-made medicines. Who cares if they're man-made? Um, yeah, and part of it just might be groupthink, too, you know? Just, you get a bunch of people together thinking crazy stuff, and uh, pretty soon they've all drank the Kool-Aid, and they behave in monstrous ways they might not otherwise, you know, on their own. I, I don't know. Because in this situation, what, you had like 12 people or whatever uh, praying and dancing around a child who was dying because they needed insulin, which could have been given to them at any time. And I don't know why I said praying and dancing. I believe they were praying and singing probably equally as ineffective and ludicrous, you know, uh, as an attempt to try to save a child in need of insulin. And I had time to stew on it, and I don't know if my ego theory holds any water or not. Uh, definitely negligent and deluded, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that theory is accurate or not, but it does 
you know, paint a kind of egomaniacal picture of God, a deity that is so uh, egotistical, monstrously egotistical, that it won't heal your dying child unless you placate it with prayer. And so I'll do one more story, and this one is also from Hemet Meda over at Only Sky, and it's entitled Survey, a record low 20% of Americans say the Bible is literally true. And that blows my mind. I would think it would be much higher. You know, they've done polls that have found things like the majority of Americans believe in angels or whatever. Uh, and I just quickly looked it up. That was a 2011 poll, and this is from CBS News. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans believe in angels. So the fact that only 20% believe in the Bible literally, I mean, yeah, that, that blows my mind. But back to this recent poll. So uh, it starts, the good news is that a record low 20% of Americans believe the Bible is literally true, according to a Gallup poll released today. And once again, this was released on July 6th, down from a record high of 40% in 1984. I'm actually surprised it was that low then. The bad news is that it feels like every single one of those people is elected is an elected office somewhere. Yes, it does. It does feel like there's a lot of uh, kind of crazy fundamentalists running the show right now. The same poll saw an all-time high 29% of Americans correctly identifying the Bible as a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. In 2017, the quote-unquote book of myths side outnumbered the quote-unquote literally true side by a mere 2%, 26 compared to 24% respectively. But that difference has now jumped to 9%, suggesting a growing gap between Americans who live in a fantasy world and those who accept reality. Meanwhile, roughly half of all Americans, 49%, believe the Bible is inspired by God, but not meant to be taken literally. So I'm glad they don't take it literally, but at the same time, if it's not to be taken literally, how do you even know it's inspired by God? You know, that's, I guess they call it faith, right? That's kind of a leap of faith, but it seems kind of, it's like you're on the right path, you know not to take it literally, but you still believe that this particular man-made or, you know, holy book or collection of books um, is inspired by the creator of the universe. And so Hemet continues, those people are what creationists refer to as heretics. Interestingly enough, that number has been fairly steady over the past few decades, so the growth of people rejecting the Bible as fact is either the result of people making a journey from literally true to inspired by God to book of myths or leapfrogging over the middle section entirely. None of this should come as a huge surprise, though, given that the United States has seen a rise in secular Americans for the past two decades. In fact, fewer than half of all Americans now say they are 100% certain of God's existence. That number is remarkably and disappointingly high, but it's still heading in the right direction.
And it continues, not all the numbers make logical sense, though. Gallup says 16% of self-identified Christians believe the Bible is a book of fables, while 6% of non-religious and non-Christian Americans believe the Bible is the actual word of God. What's going on in their minds? Do they recognize the cognitive dissonance? Who knows? They're either very confused or extremely unconcerned about all of this. Here's what's not surprising. The more often you go to church and the less formal education you have, the more likely you are to believe the lie that the Bible is literally true. It's what researchers call Ken Ham's core constituency. All of this would be cause for celebration if not for the fact that so many prominent, powerful elected Republicans and their allies believe the Bible is literally true and that it ought to be a guidebook for our nation. As Catherine Stewart wrote yesterday in the New York Times, breaking American democracy isn't an unintended side effect of Christian nationalism. It is the point of the project. They believe the Bible should supersede the Constitution when it comes to laws they don't like. And as we've seen with reproductive rights, vaccine mandates, public schools, curricula, and more, the biblical literalists are eager to impose their beliefs on the vast majority of Americans who don't share their faith, much less an extremist interpretation of their holy book. That's even more bizarre when you consider that biblical literalists don't even agree on what the Bible literally says. While the Gallup survey doesn't go into this, we know there are creationists who believe the Bible is a few thousand years old, while other Christians who would also say the Bible is literally true accept evolution. Even Pat Robertson has said, I don't think most Christians are stupid enough to buy into young earth creationism. And so you may have picked up on something there. I think it may be a little mistake that got by either Hemet or an editor, perhaps. In the article, it says, we know there are creationists who believe the Bible is a few thousand years old, while other Christians who also say the Bible is literally true except evolution. I imagine he probably meant we know there are creationists who believe the world is a few thousand years old. That's my guess anyway, based on the context, and I think he may have gotten the number of languages on the Guidestones wrong earlier, too, not to beat up on Hemet. I get so much great content from him, uh, and everyone makes, you know, little mistakes. I'm constantly, you know, having to issue corrections on this show. I thought he said there were seven languages on the Guidestones, when I think technically it may have been eight. Or maybe he meant or said seven in addition to the original English. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, we now resume the weekend out already in progress. And then there's a few bullet points at the end here. Uh, the bottom line, one, fewer Americans are biblical literalists. Two, those biblical literalists still can't get their story straight. And three, those biblical literalists still wield plenty of power over our political process. Uh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's hard to be happy about number one until we've solved the problems created by number three. And he adds, just me. Well, I completely agree with him. And this stuff about a small amount of, you know, fundamentalist Christians or biblical literalists um, in positions of power and wanting uh, religion to supersede the Constitution, this kind of ties back, you know, into what we were talking about earlier and over the past few episodes about, um, you know, these high profile people, politicians and conservative pundits. 
um, trying to undermine the separation of church and state. So once again, to reiterate, we're living in scary times. Uh, and on that cherry note, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash Doubt and help support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters. Until next time.